Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Arpita Mitra, and we have with us today author Shunalika Kaul, who is Associate Professor of History at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. She has worked extensively on Sanskrit Kavya, a genre of highly aesthetic poetry and prose. She is the editor of a volume on cultural history of early South Asia and the author of two books, both of which in some way deal with Sanskrit and the organization of geographical space. Today, we are going to discuss her second and recent book, The Making of Early Kashmir, Landscape and Identity in the Raj Tarangini, in which Shunalika upturns many prevalent views about the cultural history of Kashmir. As many would know, Kashmir is right now a highly contested territory within India. And as it happens with all such spaces, there is equally a contestation over the reconstruction of the historical memory related to the land. In this book, Shanalika challenges the view that Kashmir had an isolated, insular, and unique regional and cultural identity, separate from the identity of mainstream India. She argues that it was in fact the opposite, and her argument is based on, among other things, her highly original reading of the Sanskrit Kavya Raj Tarangini, composed by the Kashmiri author Kalhana in the 12th century AD. Raj Tarangini is an account of the history of the region of Kashmir since its origin till the time of Kalhana. Many scholars are wont to look at Raj Tarangini as a literary work only and dismiss its historical quality by arguing that it lacks objectivity. Chunalika argues in her book that Raj Tarangini is history precisely because it is Kavya. We're going to hear more about this interesting argument from the author herself. Chanalika, welcome on board. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to have you with us today. So let us begin with the text Raj Tarangini itself. Tell tell us a little bit about the book and its author, Kalhana. So as you rightly said, the Raj Tarangini is a Mahakavya or a Prabandha which is to say it's classic epic poetry in Sanskrit, composed over some 8,000 verses, spread over eight books or chapters or sections, if you like, which were known as Tarangas. And it was composed in the 12th century CE, more specifically in 1148 to 1150 CE. We can actually calculate the exact date of this text. And it was composed by a Kashmiri called uh, Kalhana. The Raj Tarangani literally means a river of kings. And it, um, uh, among the many things that the Raj Tarangani does is indeed narrate the story of Kashmir's royal dynasties from the putative beginnings of Kashmiri history right down to the author's own time, which is the 12th century CE. So for this reason, it has tended to be seen for the most as a work of political history. But uh, as you will see, I argue for looking at this really more as cultural and intellectual history, which was actively engaged in the production of knowledge and meaning, which it then imbued the land of Kashmir with. 
So for me, the Raj Tarangani is really more importantly among the earliest articulations of and engagements with a Kashmiri regional self-awareness. Okay, so what provoked your interest in the book? Um, the Raj Tarangani is an iconic text and it has been set up for, what, 200 years of scholarship now as also an exceptional text for being what we were told was the first work, first and only work of history proper in all of Sanskrit literature, which means an entire ancient India. Kalhan's Raj Tarangani was seen to be the only instance of uh, history writing proper. So, of course, as I've shown in the book, this celebration of one text was, in fact, deprecation of an entire civilization and an entire literary culture and was incorrect to boot this exceptionalism that is attributed to the Raj Tarangani. Be that as it may, there was then a certain curiosity on my part to pick up the book and see what the fuss was all about, so to speak. Um, more importantly, there's also a personal reason, and which is that I um, I picked up the Raj Tarangani first in 2005, when I had just completed and submitted my doctoral dissertation. And in the long months that separated my submission from the Viva Voce or the defense of the dissertation, I uh, I thought I would pick up another Kavya. So my PhD had been with Kavyas, different Kavyas, not the Raj Tarangani, and looking at the city in early India, which then later, of course, came out as a book called Imagining the Urban. So while I was waiting for the Viva Voce, I thought, let me just look at yet another Kavya, which was the Raj Tarangani. And that's how I actually began reading it first in 2005 and uh, then then came back to it later in 2012-13 only to find that my initial intuitive sort of approach to the Raj Tarangani or assessment of it as a Kavya was really propitious because I, uh, I have argued in my book now, as you know, that uh, rather than being a work of objectivist history, the Raj Tarangani was a Kavya first and thereby perhaps history. So in these in these kind of ways, I was drawn to the Raj Tarangani and the deeper I went, the more the questions that seemed to emerge from this work and about what it was doing on Kashmir and for Kashmir, which is really what led to the writing of the making of early Kashmir. Uh, so please tell us a little bit about this genre Kavya. What are its characteristics and functions? Okay, so the term Kavya is, uh, it's an umbrella term. It is a genre and it consists of at least four sub-genres, uh, which are uh, the Natak or drama, Mahakavya or Prabandha, that is poetry, uh, Katha or novel or tale, if you like, and Akhyayika, which uh, some people translate as biography, but basically just means a tale that involved possibly real figures rather than uh, fictional ones. What um, and, and these four sub-genres then in turn have other genres within them. So there are 10 kinds of plays, for example. Um, there's different, there's, there are combinations of prose and verse, for example, uh, known as the Champu Kavya and so on. But what unites perhaps all of these subgenres is the fact that they are all creative and narrative writing and they are highly aesthetic as you said in your introduction they are highly ornamental or figurative uh, what's called belle lettre really fine writing in sanskrit and in prakrit 
often used together in conjunction. Um, I would argue for two main qualities of kavya, which are one, a rasa. So the creation or the generation of rasa, rasa being highly essentialized and abstracted emotional states rendered as aesthetic experiences. So you have nine rasas, originally eight, then a ninth was added towards the 8th century. Uh, these relate to the fundamental basic human emotions and how they are rendered as uh, aesthetic experiences for an audience or for a readership. So generation of rasa and to the use of alankara. Alankara being figures of speech of which there were a very large number that came to be available to the Sanskrit poet. Based on a combination of the rasa and alankara, the use of these two, there were at least three different functions of kavya as envisaged by the theory or the poetics of kavya, which is known as alakar shastra. So what are the texts I'm speaking of that talk about these functions of kavya? Right from Bharata's Natya Shastra in the second century CE, through Bhama's Kavya Lankar, and a host of other texts that follow right down till at least the 11th century when you have um, Sri Harsha's Shingar Prakash and many more, even after that, right down till the 17th and 18th century, you have a host of rhetoricians who are going into the question of what is Kavya and what does it do? I identified at least three different important functions or objectives of Kavya, as it were. Uh, one, given that it is this highly aesthetic form of literature, of course, one objective was the production of entertainment or what is called Vinoda, Preeti, Hasya. So to entertain, to amuse, um, you know, a, a spectacle, as it were, a visual and oral spectacle. So that was one. But the other two functions of Kavya, which come across again right from Bharata and, and through that entire first millennium CE, are somewhat less well-known and, and less um, focused on by scholars. So this would be one, what, what is known as uh, lokasya anukarana, that is imitation or mimesis of the world. So here is kavya or ostensibly fiction making a claim to representing reality right. and doing so in ways that are very complex and using a variety of literary devices and strategies of representation, which I believe historians have not really given much credence to. They have tended to dismiss these literary strategies as mere stereotypes or um, archetypes or conventions and idealizations, failing to realize that even literary archetypes or conventions and stereotypes can actually be seen as semantic codes which were invested with a great deal of attention and meaning for well over a millennia. So actually it is worthwhile to try and unpack and read these uh, literary conventions and literary devices for what they may have been trying to capture and convey, uh, sometimes directly, sometimes symbolically, about the times in which they were composed. Uh, so that's the second very important function, which is that of mimesis of the world. And number three, perhaps the uh, running thread through my own analyses of Kavya's over the last 15 years of writing on, on history is the function of Upadesha, which is instruction. Instruction in what? In the Trivarga. 
So dharma, artha, kama, which is in broadly translated as piety, power, pleasure, or statecraft, um, success, and sex. In other words, meaning the entire realm, the entire range of human goals and human behavior and human actions is what Kavya was seen to be capable of educating on or providing instruction on. So I actually think this this last quality, these last two really, are of the essence in reading Kavya as something very profitable for social scientists and historians in particular. And this didactic, the fact that the didactic is actually inseparable from the aesthetic, is what makes Kavya an extremely potent political literary medium, is what I argue. And this work on the Raj Targan actually exemplifies that. Uh, so, what has been the conventional scholarly understanding of Raj Tarangini as a text, and uh, how is your work a departure from that? Okay, so um, ironically, most of two hundred years of scholarship now in the Raj Tarangini that has you know celebrated it as objectivist history regarded it as anything but a kavya. So you can see that this book actually is a thoroughly revisionist one, which is really swimming against the tide of this hugely influential and long-lasting reading of the text as objectivist history. But as I show in the book, this is a deeply flawed and internally riven kind of understanding of this text, which actually collapses on itself. I believe this idea of um, avoiding the Rajdarangani as Kavya a claim that the Raj Tarangani itself makes about itself. It says that it is a Mahakavya, and Kalhan says that he is a Mahakavi. And yet historians have been uh, keen to sort of ignore this or bracket it out. I think this arises out of a certain anxiety over the history-poetry divide, as it were. And I believe these scholars dismissed all aspects of figuration that were in fact proper to the Raj Tarangani as traditional poetry. So aspects like rhetoric, myth, memory, and of course the didactic, and all the rich semantic possibilities in these. These were dismissed by the, the existing scholarship on the Raj Tarangani, and instead they extolled chronology, causality, objectivity, and such like qualities that they read into the text, positivist qualities that were actually hardly central to the concerns of the genre itself. So the first thing that the making of early Kashmir tries to do is rehabilitate the Raj Tarangani to its own literary culture, which is Kavya, and thereby access the wealth of meanings about Kashmir that it produced and preserved via its own authentic representational strategies. So you argue that uh, the Raj Tarangani is history precisely because it is Kavya, and that its uh, literariness is not in, in contradiction with its historical texture. So what, in your opinion, is the relationship between history and poetics, and how do you see their interplay in the Raj Tarangini? Okay, so I believe that this purported divide between history and poetry may, in fact, be a fallacious one. And probably stems from a misunderstanding of both history and poetry. It is also a rather recent 
phenomenon, this this conception of a divide between poetry and history. And it is inspired perhaps from post-Enlightenment objectivist notions in the West rather than from any ancient approaches to treating of the past. I think it is possible to trace this uh, to a great extent to the positivist legacy of uh, Leopold von Ranke, who introduced in the late 19th century this He was a philosopher of history, and he spoke about this, uh, the centrality of facticity and objectivity and scientific method, if you please, in history, as if it were a physical science rather than a humanistic discipline. At the same time, it is interesting to note that Ranke's own contemporaries were other philosophers, such as Hegel and Joyson and Nietzsche and Croce, all of whom actually understood history writing as a literary art grounded in poetic intuition, much like Kalhan does in the Rajtarangani a thousand years before them. Today, of course, we know after the postmodern turn that um, thanks to scholars like Hayden White and Paul Ricker, I think they have convincingly shown that history is also a form of literature which would make no sense but for the uh, the coherence of the narrative form, what White called the plot structure, which is in fact the invention of the historian, no less than an invention, and which he then goes on to endow on the past and on what he has gathered as evidence of it. So that's, that's as far as history goes, and, and complicating and perhaps humanizing what history is or should be. On the other side, literature. Is, is not necessarily fiction. Although even fiction, I would argue, contains an, uh, an intuitive grasp of symbolic truths that should draw the attention of the social scientist for its sheer value. Uh, so, for example, somebody like Ike Ramanujan, not a historian, but a literary critic and a writer himself, he came out with several profound readings of ancient Sanskrit and Tamil texts, which in fact demonstrated precisely this symbolic grasp of structures in, in early India, which literature captured. So what I'm saying is that poetry is not the other of history. It may in fact be another mode or form of representation of past realities, only perhaps more aesthetic than usual. So um, so there is really a common ground for reading poetry as history and for looking for history in poetry. And, and there is happily now a growing awareness, very nascent, but nonetheless it's there, among scholars working especially on pre-modern and non-Western societies, that what is history is not a universal given in either content or in form. But it is, it is in fact a highly culture-specific understanding of what time is and what constitutes true knowledge of time. Of course, it's, um, it's, it's incumbent on the historian to devise sensitive and rigorous methods to read poetry in this manner for history. But I do believe that is something that needs to be done and should be done. So that relatedly, if I may take a minute more on this question, because I believe it is of the essence when we come to the discipline of history itself, uh, if you were to ask then that what what was then the idea of history in early India? Because there has been this very long entrenched propaganda 
that early Indians actually lacked, completely lacked a sense of historical consciousness, which is why, in fact, the Rajtarangani was celebrated as this great exception in the first place, right from 1825 when Harold Heyman Wilson, member of the Royal Asiatic Society then, uh, first identified the Rajtarangani as this only work of history uh, in all of Sanskrit. Um, an assessment which was then carried on by Oral Stein in 1900 through the work of Indologists like A.L. Basham, nationalist historians like R.C. Majumdar, um, and uh, down to the work of Romila Thapar in more recent times. All of them have actually upheld this very congratulatory um, but flawed understanding or interpretation of the Raj Tarangani's history. Um, um, the, the question of what history really was in early India, I would say, is only beginning to be asked in earnest now. And I think one of the answers would be that um, it would be fair to say that there was not one, but multiple modes and practices of history in early India. So, Itihasa, Purana, Charita, Katha, Kavya, Vanshavali, these are at least some of them, which were, however, not discrete categories, but in fact, in deep conversation with one another, which is what I also show about the Raj Tarangani, and I think I'll have occasion to speak about that later today. Um, among these different forms or modes of history in early India, I would suggest that Sanskrit poetics, Alanka Shastra, which we were talking about a little while back, actually invested in the epistemic authority of the poet, the Kavi. And they actually they set up the poet as the historian by virtue of his qualities, some of which they enumerate to be things like things akin to uh, the qualities of a seer or a yogi, meaning deeply intuitive and perceptive qualities. So, for example, they, they talk about how the poet's intuition enables him to see. And this word is a very loaded one in Sanskrit Alankar Shastra, they use the phrase literally for seeing, that is Pashya. But what they mean is that he, the poet, is actually the one who is able to truly see the nature of reality. So he's able to actually see through apparent um, uh, realities to the true nature of reality, including matters past. So Bhutartha. So the, the, the past is also the provenance of the poet. And he can he can look back at it and narrate it in a way that nobody else can because of his intuitive perception of what actually constitutes true knowledge of time. Moreover, he is, um, the Kavi is seen to do so without attachment or aversion, as it were. So, Ragadvesh Bahishkrita, as the Raj Tarangani states. So, the Kavi has actually been seen to have qualities of both. Um, in Sanskrit poetics, of both varnana, which is description, and darshana, or insight. And over and above this, then, another feature of what I would argue is Kavya's historical vision, uh, and something that's very well illustrated by the Raj Tarangani, as I'll just tell you, was the deeply ethical character of this historical vision. So I argue there's a certain... Uh, um, there is a deference to dharma and karma, which I like to translate as a critical idealism and a call to action. And that these two categories are really imbued um, uh, 
uh, imbued history in this in the kavya form of writing with a certain transcendental value over and above the more limited task of simply recording facts so what i'm saying is kavya as history was really uh, a discursive and commentarial project and not merely a documentary one and um, this this ethical Uh, the centrality of ethics as an organizing principle of the past is what i suggest qualifies the rajtarangani as history uh kalham devotes for example far less space to eulogizing virtuous kings you know which is something we associate with medieval and ancient poets that they were actually just there uh, to be paid to uh, sing paeans to their kings and masters but in fact kalham does very little of that eulogizing um uh, and and devotes far more of this his marathon work to actually critiquing wrong doing kings and and doing so in uh, with all the concern and contempt at his disposal and across 8000 verses really uh, not only kings he's also seen to be lampooning and castigating uh, various other social actors so um he he attacks pompous or cowardly brahmins he he castigates degenerate or psychophantic courtiers and feudal chiefs and so on and as i said his attack uh, his very ethical attack is in scathing terms sometimes even using obscene and scatological language for the object of his contempt which is highly unusual in sanskrit poetry so this this what what some scholars have called a trademark cynicism of kalhan i actually shows that for kalhan ethics far outweighed aesthetics and even social status so here is the here is the centrality of ethics in this man's literary and historical vision um to which if i may if i may add a, a more general comment i believe this the centrality of ethics in early literary discourses should actually complicate our understanding of sanskrit kavya and of sanskrit literary culture too because somewhere the modern understanding of ancient poets is rather supercilious we believe them to be these passive Uh, you know housebirds of patricians as one famous historian called them prostrating before their almighty patrons and just merely parroting what the elites would want to hear we also assume that uh, sanskrit poets were socially conservative and i have i have found myself always wondering at this teleological double standard as it were because we modern intellectuals and literateurs image ourselves as critical and radical and speaking truth to power but we are loath to extend the same possibilities to our ancient medieval counterparts whereas i have actually shown you know right from my first work um and so of course have other scholars in particular yigal bromer comes to mind how there are any number of examples from sanskrit literature where poets actually expose and stridently critique different forms of power in our india so that of the power of kings the power of priests of patriarchy of wealth and ostentation you you name it and it's happening in sanskrit kavya so it's really is high time i imagine 
that we revise our understanding of Kavya, not only as a historical mode, but also as a critical and discursive one. You also spoke about the didactic dimension of Kavya, and that's how you feel that Rajdarangi is really a quintessential Kavya. So how would you explain this moral impetus in Kalhana? And uh, uh, where would you locate the Rajdarangini in the history of narrative ethics? Yes. Um, so the the ethical impetus in the Raj Tarangani, I argue, is actually not unique to it, and we in fact draw from the fact that it is it's a composite text and a deeply intertextual one. What do I mean by this? Crucial postures and propositions of the Raj Tarangani, especially philosophical ones, are informed by other pan-Indian Sanskrit literary and philosophical traditions, such as Shastra. Shastra were the prescriptive treatises on statecraft and law, such as the Artha Shastra, for example. Also Niti, which were political and moral parables. Itihasa, which were narratives on the past, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, to be precise. You see them very majorly in the Raj Tarangani, both literally being quoted from and in, in symbolic terms, being alluded to. And finally, also the tradition of Vanshavali or the writing of genealogies in early India. The Raj Tarangani actually can be seen to be migrating among these genres and Kavya. So it's an act of literary virtuosity, really. The way the Raj Tarangani, far from being an exception in Sanskrit literature, which is what scholars have believed it to be so far, the Raj Tarangani actually pulled together and brought together all these many different strains of early Indian literary and philosophical thought in a, in a tremendous act of literary uh, prodigiousness, really, which also points uh, actually to the, the felicity with which Kashmiri poets could wield the master texts and genres of the Sanskrit episteme. So um, I suggest that um, uh, Raj Tarangani's emphasis on dharma and karma, or like I said, this critical idealism and a call to action, and and its emphasis on these these two um, orienting principles of ethical action for kings, praja anupalanam and praja pedanam. So praja anupalanam being welfare of the subjects, taking care of the subjects, and praja pedanam being persecution of the subjects. These are the two criteria, as it as it were, by which Kalhan actually classifies all the very large number of kings that peopled the kingdom of Kashmir over nearly 2,000 years. And he divides them into these two, um, two, two pairs, as it were, um, of, of contrasting ethical uh, and, and moral character. So I think this, this uh, the centrality of ethics in the Raj Tarangani is only replaying the much larger, much wider civilizational understanding of how ethics actually stands at the center of all human action and of an understanding of time itself. So in a way, uh, you also in effect uh, challenged the view that uh, Indian philosophy had been lacking in a sense of ethics, uh, in the sense that uh, uh, these scholars had mostly been looking for ethics in the wrong place as a specialized branch of philosophy. So they never found it where it was to be found. I mean, because it uh, figured in the text in a very different way. So, uh, 
Actually, I would I would like to emphasize that uh, the the reason I'm using the word ethics is that it is deemed to apply not merely to it's not only Rajadharma. So the Rajtarangani may be a text on the dynasties of Kashmir, but as I said early on today, it is doing so much more. And one of the things you see it doing is extending the the realm of the ethical or the provenance of the ethical well beyond royalty too. So not only to uh, counselors and so on, which would be something of a second rung of the elite beyond and after the monarchy, but to the subjects in general. So the ethical principles that the Raj Tarangani or that Kalhan is espousing, such as bravery, fidelity, loyalty, um, a deference to justice, a distinction of right from wrong behavior, these are all actually being held out as criteria or a, bar a barometer, if you like, by which every social actor who features in the Raj Tarangani is very self-consciously being assessed. So, in fact, ethics pervades the Raj Tarangani. The entire discourse is about ethics, and yet, I must underline, not in this very stereotypical uh, uh, social ideology, sacred social, sacred socio ideology, uh, a kind of way in which the category dharma and karma have both been interpreted by scholars and sociologists. Dharma, I argue, in works like the Raj Tarangani and indeed in works like the Mahabharat itself, are far from uh, narrowly defined religious constructs. They are very broad socio philosophical ideas of how the li how life should be lived and what goes into the living of a good life a good and virtuous life which promotes both individual harmony and social order and i see that throughout the raj tarangani so the other source for the early history of kashmir that you mention is the neelmat puran so uh, where do you see these two texts the raj tarangani and the neelmat puran converge As, mm, the Nilmat Puran is the local Puran or Mahatmya of uh, Kashmir, it's supposed to be composed in the 8th century CE. It is a Vaishnava uh, Puran uh, in large part. And uh, so it is so much earlier than the Raj Tarangani and in fact properly should be regarded as perhaps the earliest extant articulation of uh, a sense of Kashmir as Kashmir. Uh, well before the Raj Tarangani. What is interesting is that the Nilmath, unlike modern scholarship that has tended to dismiss the Nilmath as a worthy source of history because it is so heavily mythological and, and ritualistic, so contrary to this modern assessment of the Nilmath, Kalhan has no such issues in including the Nilmath as a primary source and intertext for his history of Kashmir. So he actually names the Nilmath Puran right at the beginning of the Raj Tarangani as being one among the more than a dozen intertexts and, and preceding texts, the Purva Grantha, as he calls it, that he relies upon. And he names those texts. And unfortunately, out of them, only the Nilmath continues to survive and has reached us today. So there is, uh, uh, Kalhan is explicit about his debt to the Nilmath in understanding 
what Kashmir is all about, which also points to a tremendous civilizational continuity, as it were, or a cultural continuity in how Kashmiris understood themselves. So for at least four or five centuries, at least, between the Nilmat and the Raj Tarangani, you are seeing a consistency and a continuity, a conscious continuity in how Kashmir is being defined. How is it being defined? Um, so uh, one of the first ways in which the Raj Tarangani depends on the Nilmat and draws on it is to explain to us, to narrate to us the origins and the cosmogony of the birth of Kashmir. So this is out of something called the Sati Saras, which is the lake of Sati, Sati being the consort of Shiva. And Kashmir is described, uh, borrowing from the uh, Nilmad, Kalhan describes Kashmir as having been a lake, uh, a primordial lake, the Sati Saras, for eons. And that later Kashmir actually emerges from this lake following the desiccation of the waters of this lake at the hands of the gods. And that's a, there's a whole uh, complex mythological tale to that. I, I perhaps shouldn't go into that. But that is the first time we hear about this origin myth of Kashmir that is coming from the Nilmat and is carried over by Kalhan in the Raj Tarangani very authoritatively. Then the Raj Tarangani also quotes the Nilmat for um, identifying the land of Kashmir with Parvati. So this is an explicit upfront sanctification of the land of Kashmir by identifying her with Parvati. And further, um, the Rashtarangani again quotes the Nilmat in turn quoting no less than Lord Krishna as saying that the land of Kashmir is Parvati and the king of Kashmir is a part of Shiva. So Haran Shajaha is the word that is used. And therefore, subjects are, uh, are exhorted to uh, obey the king of Kashmir always because he is, in fact, a portion of Shiva. And this is interesting because I told you that the Nilmat is a Vaishnava text, and yet it is playing, it is deploying this um, uh, very Shev and Shakt understanding and identity for Kashmir. And this is this is significant because these three strands of theism, Vaishnava, Shev, and Shakt, actually continue to this day to populate the sacred geography of Kashmir. And against very severe odds and challenges now, of course, for the last 30 years. But nonetheless, this is what you have. Um, the Nimat is also the source for the Raj Tarangani of uh, the characterization of Kashmir as uh, as a land of water bodies. So not only the river, but uh, also a large number of these lakes that are known as Nagas. They're still known as Nagas in Kashmir. Uh, Sheshnag, Zamaturnag, uh, Verinag, and so on. And Anantnag being, being a town, but yes, it is it is named after after uh, the word is the same, Naga. So what, what did the Nagas then stand for? The Nagas were these lakes but they are also understood to be the tutelary spring deities of these lakes. And Nagas are regarded with a great deal of reverence, right from, again, the Nilmat through the Raj Tarangani till today in Kashmir. So this is a level of folk culture, as it were, that again has enjoyed tremendous continuity in Kashmiri history, and there's not much credence for that. What is more, geologists have also told us that the 
the morphological formation of the valley of Kashmir did indeed happen from a primeval lake, which later dried up and uh, was desiccated. So what, what is happening is really that in the Nilmath, this seems to be a memory that is preserved as myth, which actually is enshrining Kashmir as this residual land after the desiccation or the drying up of um, and the in, uh, and the partial drying up because it leaves behind these little seasonal pools that are the nagas so in fact the natural geography of kashmir is woven beautifully into its sacred geography via the nilmath and then of course the rajtharangi so talking about lakes land and landscape we come to the second node in your study place you argue that historical geography had an important role to play in the making of Kashmiri identity on the ground and as it configures in the text Rajtarangini. You write, uh, I quote, place is time made visible, unquote. Tell us a little bit about the sacred geography of Kashmir and how you see the interaction between space and time in the making of early Kashmir. So, as I read the Rajtarangani and, and the more I read of the Rajtarangani, I came to a certain realization that Kalhan's efforts may have been directed at generating not only a history or a temporality, but also, uh, perhaps even more significantly, a place for history or for time. And this place was Kashmir. And the writing of its history by Kalhan, I therefore argue, was perhaps tied up with also creating a homeland. So how does just another piece of land become a homeland? Or how does an abstract space transform into a specific intimate place? Which is how Kashmir comes across in the Raj Tarangani. So this was a question that I thought deserved going into. And I identify what I call certain practices of placemaking in the Raj Tarangani that actually generates this effect of creating a region called Kashmir by lending it certain meanings. Implicated in this process were centrally the sacred geography of the land, but also a model of prescriptive politics that was laid over the sacred geography, as I will shortly explain. And finally, an understanding of regional selfhood itself that aspired to transcend the narrow cultural limits of a region. So there was a certain universality to the regional selfhood uh, or, or the landscape of Kashmir that the Rajtarangani inscribes. Now, how exactly does it do this? What is this poetics of place that I argue that the Rajtarangani espouses? Um, I think central to understanding this is the role of the landscape, which I'm borrowing on landscape studies to speak about the landscape um, as different from land. How does the land become a landscape? It is when geography is overlaid with narrative. And that narrative then generates a rootedness in the land and encodes it with culturally specific meanings. So, in this perspective, myth is not history's primeval other, but a very special kind of historical strategy, which inscribed and memorialized, as it were, geographical places, and also stitched them to time. So one chapter in the making of early Kashmir actually is devoted to citing the very many examples of how this actually plays out 
in the text. And uh, true to the pan-Indian pattern, really, mythology and geography in Kashmir were a joint imaginative and descriptive undertaking. These myths could be local lore, local Kashmiri stories, or they could be derived subcontinentally from epic and Puranic archetypes, um, uh, exemplifying again the intertextuality that I was speaking about earlier. Weaving together gods, demigods, the Nagas, for example, kings, peoples, and places. These stories, these myths, actually filled out and lent tradition to the land that was Kashmir, anchoring and orienting its people, not, not only to their own physical world, but also to the moral or the ethics that inhered in these constructed and preserved memories. Now, as uh, the poetess Paula Allen has said, is it we who invent the stories and thus inform the land? Or does the land give us the stories, thus inventing us? And I think this really lies at the heart of how a textual representation like the Raj Tarangani, in a dialectical fashion, creates or produces a region called Kashmir. It's a dialectical process, I emphasize that, because it is responding to the natural geography of Kashmir and yet lending it a greater depth and a greater meaning by imbuing it with this vast storehouse of stories, both local and oral and folk and larger, as I said, Puranic and subcontinental. And all of these together then are creating a land, a very familiar, intimate space called uh, Kashmir. Um, you asked about how the sacred geography uh, played out in this. Uh, it, it does so actually very centrally because the Rajtarangani begins with describing the birth of Kashmir, as I earlier spoke about, from a sacred lake uh, through the hands of the gods. And thereafter, the exegesis of Kashmir is one of an identity with the goddess Parvati. And the king then of Kashmir in turn is also a part of the god Shiva. So the sanctification of the natural geography of Kashmir actually happens very seamlessly in the Rajtarangani. The movement from enumerating a large number of natural features of the land, mountains, rivers, lakes, um, uh, gorges, swamps, precipices, a large number of which occur in uh, the Rajtarangani, the movement from describing these natural features to describing them as sacred geography or spiritual tirthas and pilgrimage sites, which also accompany these sacred mountains or rivers or gorges and so on in Kashmir. This movement is a very seamlessly effected one in the Rajtarangani. And this is what actually draws on the sacred geography to uh, to do really what is what should be called a kind of map making where the listeners or the readers and the audience of the Raj Tarangani would have been very familiar with this whole string of natural and sacred tirthas that Kalhan enumerates uh, and which uh, you know I could give you examples of these uh, if you want there are a large number of them and what is what is significant about this list of um, pilgrimages or tirthas that uh, Kalhan enumerates is that they continue to be pilgrimage sites or shrines in Kashmir today. So you have Vijbror or Vijayeshwar, you have Chakradhar or Saktar in Kashmiri today, you have Chakrabhrit as well, you have um, 
the Sharada temple, which today lies uh, just across the LOC and sadly in derelict condition, she is mentioned centrally in uh, the Raj Tarangini and of course in the Nilmats earlier still. Uh, there is a reference to Bhedagiri or the mountaintop where, uh, where Saraswati is seen as a swan in a lake. There is a reference to Jeshteshwar, which is ancient Shankracharya uh, of today. There is a reference to the Amarnath, uh, the Yatra to the Amarnath and so on, which again are continuing living practices uh, in Kashmir today. Again pointing to the tremendous continuity against the odds, the cultural continuity that stays alive. What I further argue then is that given that landscape is manifested narration, so the landscape is actually not just a view, but it's a point of view is what I argue. So given that argument, the key to the Raj Tarangani's portrayal of Kashmir as a deeply, a deeply sacred geography was also, I argue, to provide a synergistic backdrop against which Kalhan's ethicized political commentary could unfold. So we were speaking about how ethics is central to Kalhan's rendition of the history of Kashmir. And here I actually go on to show that it is also somewhere central to how Kalhan talks about the space that is Kashmir. So geography and polity, I show in the book, are brought together in a stunning contrast, in a, combi in a, in a combined po poetic schema to essay a very instructive contrast. Because you have on the one hand a pristine spiritual geography, but occurring therein are extremely troubled and disturbed political events. So I argue for a foil between the two, and I also say that there are therefore three layers, as it were, to Raj Tarangani's signification of the region of Kashmir. So there is the topographic, then overlaid by the mythic narrative, and over and above that is the discursive. So uh, as we know, historiography of Kashmir has so far projected it to be an insular entity with a distinct identity shaped more by its so-called peripherality instead of its interaction with the Indian mainland. You, on the contrary, demonstrate that this position flies in the face of the ample evidence that is found of Kashmir being linked to the mainland in important ways. Political conquests, as, as evinced from the circulation of coins, marriage, embroilment in the politics of the mainland, trade, pilgrimage, art, and so on. So tell us about what is meant by uh, quote-unquote connected history and how you have located Kashmir within this entanglement, theoretically as well as factually. Yes. So connected history, the way I understand it, is the perspective that regions do not come into being or exist in isolation, but are in fact entangled in a network of shaping interactions with other regions, typically also with supra-regions. So for Kashmir, departing from the presumption, and, and I must say prompted by the range of sources that I went on to look at, I found it necessary to depart from the presumption in historiography so far that Kashmir was an isolated or an insular region. Moving away from this kind of perspective on Kashmir, what I decided to do was to actually explore how Kashmir may have been located in her immediate regional configuration, which is in the Western Himalayas and the entire North-Northwest, as it were, 
um, therefore, I, I expanded beyond looking at only Kashmir to look at the entire regional spread from Gandhar and Ladakh to Jammu, Punjab, and of course, Kashmir right up till Himachal Pradesh as well. And to look at these sub-regions in terms of their connected histories and then of this entire regional configuration and its connected histories with the Indic mainland. And what this threw up, the cross-linkages that this threw up were actually truly mind-boggling. Because as you rightly said, we have been taught so far that Kashmir was an outpost or a periphery to Indic civilization, something of a highway to you know Central Asia or West Asia or anywhere, but to India and, and the Indic mainland. So that whole construct of an isolation and insularity for Kashmir vis-a-vis the mainland is uh, it has been an article of faith, as it were, about Kashmir. In fact, however, when we look at the range of cultural markers from early Kashmir that I do look at in this book, so I'm talking archaeology, art, script, linguistics, foreign accounts, philosophy, literature, and so on. When we look at these, they actually question these assumptions and attest to Kashmir's deep and extensive connections and mutual involvement, not just with neighboring areas like Punjab and Himachal, but in fact with centers of Indic civilization in the deep interiors of India, like Patna in Bihar, Nalanda, Gaya, Banaras, Allahabad, Mathura, again Uttar Pradesh, Malwa, Central India, Madhya Pradesh, Gaud, Bengal, and right down till Karnataka and Tamil Nadu, so as far south as Tamil Nadu. And this has interestingly been captured, in fact, in a recent work by Whitney Cox, which he describes very colorfully as saffron in the rasam, to point to the, the very crucial Kashmiri contribution to Tamil literary culture. So here was cultural transmission and communication of incredible reach. Far, far from any notions of isolation for Kashmir, Kashmiris were looking to these other parts of India for politics, trade, education, asylum, employment, art, religion, philosophy, fashion, and pilgrimage. While people from different parts of India were traveling to and settling in Kashmir for the same reasons. In fact, this is seen in such significant numbers and over so many centuries in Kashmir that it has very crucial demographic implications for Kashmir and for for asking that crucial question, who really is the Kashmiri, ethnically speaking, when we are looking at such large numbers of migrations from the rest of India over such a long period of time. All in all then, what I'm seeing is that so massive and crucial was Kashmir's presence in Indic affairs and vice versa. So so that actually, how many of us know that Kashmir was a land that spearheaded virtually all intellectual and cultural movements of the Indian subcontinent for at least 1500 years. So great was therefore Kashmir's centrality to India and Indian, so Indic therefore was Kashmiri characters, Kashmiri culture, that one has to move away. One has to move away now from this paradigm of unique history for Kashmir or this paradigm of center and periphery to that of connected histories. 
to correctly understand Kashmir's civilizational centrality and indeed her genesis. Now, it has also been pointed out that this has important corrective implications for politics. For how did so much integration between Kashmir and the rest of India historically play out if Kashmir was never a part of India? And yet untold lives have been lost precisely over this piece of disinformation. What is this center-periphery thesis which you question in your book? What is your take on the thesis with regard to Sanskrit Kavya from Kashmir? Also, tell us about the model of cultural flows that you have adopted in the book in contradistinction to the center-periphery approach. Okay, so center-periphery is this rather colonialist model of explaining how regions came about. Uh, all regions of India, but particularly outlying regions of India, were believed to have developed as adjuncts of or as material and cultural dependence of the Ganga Valley. Why? Because it is in the Ganga Valley, it is said, that urbanization and civilization first comes circa 7th, 6th century BCE. So the regional process in early India, in this perspective, is then seen as a top-down, unilineal and hierarchical one, which dovetails with other terms like acculturation, hegemonization, Sanskritization as a vehicle of that hegemonization, and so on. All of which are essentially takeoffs on hierarchy and on state power as the essential driving force behind sociocultural processes and indeed behind the development of regions. Regions like Kashmir, which are then in this perspective consigned to the status of peripheries or borderlands. Now, contrary to this perspective, because I believe that binaries and hierarchies like center periphery or mainland borderland, heartland borderland and so on, these are never enough to actually think about complex spaces, especially lived spaces, which is what regions are. So as a more suitable alternative, perhaps I propose a model of cultural flows. Now, some may argue that acculturation also entails cultural flows, but the differences between these two models that I'm proposing are actually several and crucial in how we understand regional processing early India. So the model of cultural flows that I have adopted in the making of early Kashmir is polycentric and multilinear, not unilinear and not centered on any one center such as the Gangetic Valley. In fact, I'm interested in looking at how Kashmir is constituting herself as a center and, and not as some kind of periphery. So uh, this model of understanding the region is polycentric and multilinear. It is less ingress more infusion, spontaneous rather than orchestrated. It is both material and ideational, arising organically over eons, and often, but not only, affected by the agency and peregrinations of non-state actors, such as traders, pilgrims, scholars, settlers and artisans pursuing non-hierarchical agendas, such as commerce, education, employment or worship. So all of this mobility and cultural transfers imply, I argue, a situation of 
overlapping communities and cultural practices, not an isolated or peripheral identity for Kashmir in any sense at all. Uh, how do you see Kashmir uh, negotiating between a kind of regional exceptionalism and participation in the cultural life of the mainland? So as I mentioned earlier, I argue for Kashmir's selfhood as reflected in the Raj Tarangani being far from a project in regionalism or parochialism, actually aspiring towards transcending the narrow cultural limits of regionalism. Now, what do I mean by this? The vernacular actually finds a peculiar expression and form in early Kashmir that makes it quite different from other regions. That form is cosmopolitan and universal, not local and parochial. What am I referring to when I say cosmopolitan and vernacular and so on? Obviously, Sheldon Pollock and his influential argument about the binary of cosmopolitan and vernacular languages and how vernacular languages like Kannada, Bengali, Gujarati and so on effectively displaced the cosmopolitan language par excellence, Sanskrit, when regional kingdoms crystallized in different parts of India between 1000 and 1500 CE. The point, however, is that Kashmir offers a stunning exception to this. She emerges on the discursive horizons of history with self-awareness as a region and a people entirely in Sanskrit and not in the vernacular tongue, Kashmiri. And I explain the possible reasons for that in the book. In other words, I am arguing for the, cosm the cosmopolitan as the vernacular in Kashmir. And I'm referring, of course, to the Raj Tarangani and the still earlier Nilmat Puran and how these are the earliest articulations of Kashmiri selfhood in chaste Sanskrit language and genres. So much so that till today, you know, interestingly, the Kashmiri names of places in the valley are clearly derivatives of their Sanskrit names that I mentioned in the Raj Tarangani 900 years ago, displaying a remarkable persistence of cultures despite the odds. So what I'm, what I'm arguing for is that, and, and what is interesting is that the Raj Tarangani is not even the first form this took. In what is often glossed over, the text itself names a very long and like tradition of texts, also in Sanskrit, that narrated the history of Kashmir long before Kalhan. So it is not, the, the history of Kashmir is not even just 800 years old. It actually runs to 2000 years ago when the recording of history in Sanskrit in Kashmir may have started. So when you add to this fact all the other geocultural synchronicities with the rest of the subcontinent that we were talking about, it suggests that early Kashmir presents an understanding of regions as perforated entities. Nodes gathering spatial flows and connectivities that stretched far in time and space. Moreover, this was hardly perceived as threatening. This constitutive exteriority that I'm talking about seems to have been inherently enabling. And Kashmiris like Kalhan seem to wear their local and universal affiliations with no apparent discomfort or sense of dissonance at all. Indeed, one observes that the highly intertextual Raj Tarangani was in this sense a metaphor for Kashmir. Since just as, just as texts make themselves from other texts, 
regions could also make themselves from other regions. The local and the universal, the vernacular and the pan-Indic, therefore, appear as but different registers of expression for Kashmir. So what I argue is that in, in what may be described then as a diaglossic identity, if you like, the regional is hardly expropriated by the transregional in Kashmir. The Rajtarangani does not even see these as mutually exclusive identities to sport. It actually wears both these characters with great ease. So I really argue that there is a need to appreciate that societies have always been constituted by their involvement in more extensive networks. And ancient regions could be just as embedded in and defined by these spatial matrices outside of themselves and be just as cosmopolitan and dynamic as modern cities and nations, even without the benefit of the latter's much more advanced communication technologies. You know, while reading the book, I was intrigued by something. The evidence that you marshal in support of a connected history is far too great to have been ignored so far, and instead an argument being made about Kashmir's insularity. How do you think scholars have managed to project an insular Kashmir in spite of the presence of such an overwhelming quantum of counter-evidence? <laughs> now, that is the million-dollar question, Arpita. As I began my research in the Rajtarangani and then later again when I started looking at the non-textual testimonies as well, this, this plethora of historical evidence and sources from Ali Kashmir, which were all speaking in unison, to tell us about the connected histories of Kashmir and early India, I kept wondering that how did so many great scholars miss all this? How did it all happen? Now, in the current batch of scholars, so people who are writing about Kashmir, say, for the last 30 or 40 years, the scholars, the journalists, the activist academics, one reason could be that uh, they seem to be more invested in Kashmir's politics than her history or than her historical truths. And this would be okay if it wasn't for the fact that this has all been at the cost of a great deal of blood spilt, a very large number of lives lost over this false and patently unhistorical propaganda now that Kashmir was never a part of India. So the real cost, as it were, to this, call it what you like, academic oversight or misrepresentation, the real cost to this misrepresentation adds a very grave and tragic dimension to this oversight, as it were. And I should also add that there attaches a, a considerable historical myopia to such a perspective, a perspective that seems to give greater credence to constructed identities that are fashioned overnight, as it were, in the service of separatist fundamentalist causes, rather than to give credence to historical identities that have formed organically in the long durée and that reflect the open and plural histories of Kashmir that we have been talking about, the cosmopolitan and dynamic histories of Kashmiris and not the closed and exclusionist visage and agenda that is really playing out in the valley today in the cause of religious extremism. But you know, be that as it may, I think I would want to reiterate that howsoever obscured History ultimately cannot be erased or wished away because it doesn't suit politics. 
Also, I feel this is more true of the current generation of scholars, as you said, who have been writing for the past three decades. Uh, earlier, the uh, uh, the earlier historians of India never entertained any such illusion that Kashmir was not a part of mainstream India. In fact, Kashmir very much was a part of mainstream India. Otherwise, why is it that uh, Chinese pilgrims like Huang Sang would make it a point to visit Kashmir as well as Kanyakumari? Oshankracharya, for that matter, why does he begin in the deep south in Kaladi in Kerala and undertake all three of his Digvijayas around the country, culminating each time in Kashmir and in fact at the Sharada Peet, which he describes as the Sarvagya Peter, which means the seat of all knowledge. So Kashmir, here is a statement coming from the deep south of India on the centrality of Kashmir in the far north. And our earlier scholars were not uh, uh, blind to this fact. In fact, they acknowledged it. So this is, in fact, a recent development, this argument or this discourse about Kashmir's insularity. Absolutely. Finally, I mean, I would like to ask, since you have worked extensively on Sanskrit literary works, uh, what role you think uh, the Sanskrit language played in early Indian history? So, I would put to you that uh, asking and answering this question in the 21st century as we are, it seems to me that Sanskrit has come to be rather misunderstood for at least a couple of centuries now, but especially since the 20th century, when scholarship came to increasingly believe that it was Sanskrit was historically a language exclusively of scripture, ritual, and repression. But I put to you that that is a drastically reductive view of the vast and variegated repertoire of Sanskrit literature, which entails everything from metaphysics to erotics, logic to poetics, statecraft, medicine, including veterinary sciences, in fact, maths, astronomy, painting, architecture, law, ethics, food, you name it. And it's there in Sanskrit, one text or very many. I can't emphasize enough, therefore, that languages are not merely instruments of power and politics. They are also an entire system of symbolic expression, means through which societies made sense and meaning of the world around them and also articulated their own humanity and genius. So let us not throw the baby out with the political bathwater, as it were. If there was ever a time to reimagine Sanskrit and other early Indian languages and recover and interrogate the extraordinary intellectual histories entailed by them, I believe it is now. Okay. So thanks, Shunalika, for this great interview. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the channel New Books in South Asian Studies on New Books Network. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.